Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have the privilege of sitting down with Charlotte Bismuth. Uh, she's formerly worked as an assistant district attorney at the Office of Special Narcotics Prosecutor in New York and is the author of a new book titled Bad Medicine. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Charlotte. Thank you very much for having me. So I was really intrigued when I, I heard about this book because of just what it dives into is exactly what pharmacists have dealt with for a long time, obviously involving opioids and things like that. This book goes specifically into a trial about Dr. Stan Lee, not like the author, that's L.I., in New York. Can you kind of tell us what sparked your interest in this case and give us a little more info on kind of how all this started? Absolutely. Dr. Stan Lee was an anesthesiologist who had a full-time job in New Jersey uh, that paid very well. Unfortunately, on the weekend, he had a side job operating a pain management clinic from a uh, basement office in Flushing. And in that office, he sold prescriptions for controlled substances in exchange for cash to patients who had not only, you know, histories of substance use disorder or self-harm, but about whom he had received often very clear warnings from other physicians or emergency rooms and even calls from pharmacists. The case started for us with a tip. I was working... Late one night, I received a small post-it note from my boss with just a phone number on it for a detective and the name of a doctor, Dr. Stanley. The complaint was that this doctor was selling prescriptions to kids. And as you can imagine, for a prosecutor to receive a tip about a doctor selling prescriptions was confounding because doctors write prescriptions. It is part of their job. It is something they are authorized and entitled to do. And my first question was, is this really a case for the criminal justice system? So the first part of our investigation was really focused on understanding whether there was any crime to be investigated. And uh, pharmacies, I have to say, were really our first line of information because in New York State, even at that time, there was a database maintained by the New York State Department of Health to which the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement had access, and it kept... Uh, records of prescriptions for controlled substances issued all over the state. So I was able to call on them to take a preliminary look at the prescriptions. And, you know, from that little note on December 1st, we were launched into a four-year-long investigation. We uncovered 16 overdose deaths. We went through two grand jury presentations. The grand jury ultimately charged Dr. Lee with 218 criminal counts. We went to trial on 211 of those counts. Uh, the trial lasted for four months. It included 72 witnesses, including a number of pharmacists. And Dr. Lee was convicted finally in 2014 and is now serving a prison term of from 10 to 20 years in a New York State prison, in part for uh, the manslaughter of two of his patients who died of overdoses. So, you know, this case really started out with a question mark and ended up with a conviction that was a very unfortunate first in New York State. Yeah. And so that's a, kind of like a crazy long story. The a trial lasted four months. I know 
many people think of stuff like the OJ trial that lasted forever, but I actually sat on a trial myself that was a, a homicide uh, trial and it only lasted like a few weeks uh, with the evidence and everything. So that's crazy that it took this long. And you said pharmacists were really the one of the key people that helped with this. How was that? Was it just serving as professional witnesses? Was it reporting things? Kind of like what did the pharmacist do that kind of helped build this case for you? So on so many different levels, first of all, you know, I think of pharmacists as being in a similar position to prosecutors sometimes in the sense that you are part of the process and in some ways also, you know, observing quite a bit and then needing to exercise discretion on whether or not to to intervene or to call. Um, And, you know, of course, pharmacists are in the privileged position of being able to speak up or speak to the patient or call the provider before the medication is dispensed. But they are also in such a difficult position because prescribers have uh, such discretion, because patients obviously were experiencing real suffering, you know, no pharmacist or no individual wants to delay their relief. And because they have, you know, from what I understand, the reporting abilities are they exist, but they don't always lead to immediate action. So in our case, we had pharmacists who, when they received prescriptions from Dr. Lee or when they had seen them so often, would call his office and say, are you sure that you want to prescribe oxycodone and Xanax together in these doses? They did everything they could. You know, other pharmacies contacted the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement. They cooperated fully with our office when we came in to ask them, you know, how often do you see these prescriptions coming in? You know, what what are your concerns about them? And the pharmacists usually said to us, and I, I would go into the pharmacies with my investigative partner, Joe Hall, they would say, we're so glad that you're here. We're so grateful that somebody is finally looking at this. You know, I think similarly to the experiences of many local prosecutors and pharmacists. In our case, the New York State Professional Oversight Agency for Prescribers was not very proactive, frankly. So it was a long wait for everyone, and unfortunately, a number of lives that were lost before we were able to stop him. But we were all very relieved when we were. And I should mention, you know, one of the more tragic outcomes of the case was the uh, Father's Day murder in Medford, Long Island on in uh, 2011 on June 19th. And I'm sure you remember this case. A young man went into a pharmacy. He shot the pharmacist, his young assistant, and two customers. And he stole hydrocodone pills before making off in a getaway car driven by his wife. Those two individuals were patients of Dr. Lee. And that incident put us in not only just this state of absolute, you know, emergency where we felt a tremendous pressure to shut down Dr. Lee's clinic immediately, but it really revealed the extent to which pharmacists are very much on a front line in a in a in a way that is much more risky than I think anybody could ever contemplate or accept. Yeah. And you know And that was devastating. Yeah, I've obviously I've been working on, you know, as you say, the front lines of this for a long time or about a decade, 11 years or so, plus years as an intern attack and all that stuff. So kind of a long time all in all. And you kind of hit on a few things there is one pharmacists really are the gatekeepers to a lot of medications like this. There's obviously some exceptions when doctors dispense out of their office or what have you, but that's pretty limited with most controlled substances. And 
I really am appreciative that pharmacists were the ones who helped give you a lot of the information. I've worked with agents myself, uh, like DEA agents, cri- uh, criminal cases, things like that. And so many times, you know, when, they, when people like that come in or talk to us, we get really nervous because we're just a very conservative, like legal mm-hmm. bunch. And so we get all tied up in knots, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we giving you too much? What are we allowed to give you? You know, there's all these questions that start going through our head, like, is HIPAA going to be broken? And, but really you know, it, it comes down to that you guys have, are trying to take care of what could be a major issue and nothing might come of it. Like you said, sometimes this takes a long time. You know, this took years of building up to really kind of get this case to come to fruition. And it was unfortunately as pharmacists were, we're used to people who they walk in the door, they want something in 10, 15 minutes and out. And that's kind of the way we're used to operating. It's really important that reporting like this takes a long time. And I've seen that before where I've sent something to the board, Board of Pharmacy, Board of Medicine, whoever it is, the DEA, and they'll call me back months later. And I'm like, well, man, that took a long time. But, you know, I don't see all the things that they're tackling at the same time. The same way, you know, you guys don't see everything we're doing at the same time, although it's probably a little more obvious with, you know, what we're doing. Just the thoughts that go through our head and things like that. And I think that's huge that you called that out, that pharmacists were both the witness and the people who kind of provided some of this information to help stop somebody and who the was, victims. Oh yeah. And the victims too, and obviously. Vic- yeah. I, that's yeah. a good, good point as well. And so really we're almost like every aspect of this case, which is why I think it's huge for pharmacists to really, you know, make sure we're speaking up and kind of airing, I don't want to say grievances, but airing concerns that we have that are coming with prescribers we're seeing. And it can be a very cumbersome process, but it is something that, you know, is in the best interest of everybody and, you know, you also called out the one thing is we also in this gray area have to deal with, you know, when we're seeing a doctor, if we're seeing a hundred prescription prescriptions from them, was it maybe one that was a bad case? Was it one in a thousand? Mm-hmm. Was it one in 10? Was it every other? Like, you know, like what are we reporting on this? And that's really our call to kind of make that discretionary report, but you know, with something we should definitely follow up with. So do you see pharmacists are really empowered anyway to help stop this other than just kind of like good faith and, you know, quote duties of the job, if you will? Well, you know, I, I think it takes a, a statewide coalition to give pharmacists the ability to act on their concerns. And one of the things I was thinking about um, hearing you speak just now is, you know, HIPAA is obviously of such high importance. Right. Um, it is very, very important for law enforcement and everybody else to understand the obligations of pharmacists to, you know, respect the law. We had, um, again, this office in New York State, the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement, whose officers, their peace officers, they were HIPAA exempt. So they provided a really unique communication channel to pharmacists where they could go in and have open, safe, legal conversation with pharmacists about what was going on. Unfortunately, of course, that office was, you know, for a long time, sort of an afterthought, underfunded. Um, They had some staffing issues. But that kind of unit is so key because they develop an expertise. They are able to communicate with, you know, the people on the front line, including the pharmacists, to have access to those records. And they can serve as a really effective first filter Uh, You know, the other concern is that, of course, the professional oversight boards for medicine were incredibly influenced by Purdue and other pharmaceutical companies. There was a lot of, um, you know, marketing and uh, subsidizing and lobbying that resulted in standards being set that were extremely lax. And so that took a lot of power, I think, away from 
the other gatekeepers, such as the pharmacists and, you know, ultimately law enforcement, because, you know, the, the state board had such an expansive understanding of physician discretion and the role of these medications. So it's, it's very complicated. But another, uh, you know, another thing I should mention was that we, there were certain pharmacies in our case that were so how shall I say it? Um, there were pharmacies that were very close in proximity to Dr. Lee's office that processed such a massive volume of his prescriptions, mostly in cash. And these were prescriptions that were very uh, repetitive, meaning 120 oxy, 90 Xanax, 2 milligrams, pretty much for every patient. And we're talking about 40, 50, 60, 70 patients a day going to the oh, wow. same pharmacy potentially. So a tremendous volume. Now, those pharmacists, we clearly and quickly understood that they were not going to work with us or with the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement the same way, but there were very, very few of them. And most of the pharmacies that we worked with had you know, really tried their best to communicate with Dr. Lee's office. But again, he, you know, he made the choice to staff his office with people who knew nothing about the medication. Um, he had a standard script set out for them that they were just, you know, so long as he had, in fact, written the prescription, there was no further inquiry, no further communication. And unfortunately, the pharmacists were in a very difficult position at that point. Yeah. And, you know, part of the issue, too, we saw this with the uh, the Netflix documentary on uh, Dan Schneider. We've seen it reported other ways, too, is pharmacists really are only incentivized to fill it. And so, like you said, we do our work. And if the doctor says it's good, you know, legally, we kind of covered ourselves. But is it necessarily the right the right thing to do, if you will. And in Ohio, we actually got recognized as providers. And part of the hope was, is that there could be some sort of fee down the road for refusing on good clinical or, you know, legal or some sort of, or some sort of evidence that this isn't appropriate. And this was incorrect prescribing. So we could actually get paid for not filling a prescription. So we could keep things like opioids off the streets. Now, obviously, again, in that gray area, there's a lot of people that that do need medications like opioids and things like that, or your Xanax, two milligrams you referred to. And you know, that's, that's a different story if we're refusing that, that again, though, comes back on us legally if we're denying service or denying medication that is justified, but something like this, where we're seeing this trend now, you know, maybe like the state or whoever it would, would be could, or the insurance could actually pay us for making a clinical decision that we're seeing like a doctor prescribing at one pharmacy, 70 prescriptions for people that or 70 people, the same prescriptions over and over again. Do you think that maybe like there could be some sort of use of diagnosis code, some sort of provider status for pharmacists, drug monitoring programs? Do you think any of that stuff would really help nip this in the butt more and prevent major issues like this from happening? Not even with opioids, maybe with other bad actors in prescribing or poor prescribing standards. So I, I definitely believe in the iStop program, which was in, or programs like that, which was in part launched in response to the Dr. Lee case in New York in 2012, and that required electronic prescribing of controlled substances. Yeah. Um, it also, you know, sort of forced providers and prescription writers to see all of the universe of prescriptions that their patients had received, and. You know, I I think transparency goes a very long way to not just making sure that doctors and pharmacists have all of the information, but also serving as a subtle warning to physicians that 
we know that you know, and you are, you know, you are on notice of um, these other prescriptions that your patient has received and of this information. With respect to pharmacists, what you describe in Ohio is very meaningful because I think it, it expands upon what we all hope to be one of the key functions of the pharmacist, which is to serve as the liaison between sort of the pharmaceutical companies or, you know, the, the medication providers and the patients. I mean, sometimes, you know, patients will just get refills and so they end up seeing their pharmacist more than the physician. Sometimes right. they may have a, you know, neighborhood relationship with the pharmacist where the pharmacist is well-placed to see all of their prescriptions and ask questions and advise them, see their family members. And, you know, respecting that role, understanding the insight and the knowledge and the power that comes with that, which is, you know, that pharmacists may have an ability to communicate a message to a patient that might not be received you know, the same way if it, if it came from a physician who you just see occasionally, you know, are you sure, does your doctor know that you're taking all of this? You know, are you aware of the side effects of this medication? So many times those important conversations don't take place. So, you know, I do have some concerns about the sort of hard and fast limitations on prescribing because I'm not a doctor. I don't have a medical degree. I don't have a pharmaceutical degree. I don't want anybody suffering from chronic pain to be forced to, you know, suffer in silence. And, of course, I think it is a very difficult thing for legislators to impose hard and fast limits. I would hope that those limits would come from professional oversight agencies or the AMA or, you know, professional boards. Um, and I would hope that they would be accompanied by, you know, that it wouldn't just be a limit in the abstract, but that it would be sort of supported and accompanied by training on what are the other avenues of relief that can be provided. Also for, you know, access to proper uh, diagnostic tools and healthcare, such that patients are not just being given one medication to numb the pain, but rather have the opportunity to have their pain investigated, properly diagnosed, treated with a number of different therapies. And for doctors, most importantly, to recognize their obligation to not just put a patient on a medication, but take them off it. Yeah. That burden should not fall on substance use disorder recovery specialists or pharmacists or lawyers, that burden falls on the doctor. And um, I think there's a very strong ethical argument that uh, physicians need whenever they prescribe some of these opioids uh, need to have an exit strategy for the patient. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of where some of this was going with the uh, provider thing with Ohio was we can really possibly even when it comes to your chronic pain patients, like we're seeing insurances limit, you know, limit patients to seven days, doctors to put a prior authorization. In. We all know how overwhelmed some of these doctor's offices are. That could take days. If a pharmacist were right there, a patient was there, we could theoretically call and, you know, get those, get that process moving quicker. So to help take care of them, but also to help stop things from getting on the street like that, you know, or in the wrong hands as well. So I think you really hit on a much broader issue. And I really appreciate that because it is a very complex when you're dealing with these type of drugs that have addiction issues and it isn't really, it shouldn't be the 
that they, you can just turf them to an addiction specialist to get them off because those people are super overworked right now with the demands that they're seeing all across the U.S. from even other drugs such as heroin and fentanyl that are also causing addiction and overdose deaths and things like that. So their tasks are just monumental. I know some of them personally, and it's it's amazing what they do and what they have to deal with. So Absolutely. And also, if, if I may just add one thing, you know, not all cases of dependence or, you know, patients who are really having trouble with, with, living with opioids extend to a type of addiction that requires that treatment. Often it's a really a matter of the doctor helping to transition the patient off a of medication, you know, um, to, to which they have become so tolerant that the side effects have really outpaced yes. the benefits. Yes, no, that is definitely true. I've seen where doctors try and titrate people down and kind of what they go through personally as they're coming in and just how they feel and talking to them. And yeah, that's that's also a very, very sensitive, I don't want to say topic, very sensitive way of how you have to handle all of that. So before we kind of mention where we can find your book, because obviously I, I, I'm excited for this because I can see your expertise expertise come out and just are the conversation we're having on top of you know some of the early things I read on it, some of the praise. There was some recent news about Purdue had offered pot or had considered offering rebates on overdose deaths of patients. Have you heard anything about that, or can you elaborate on that at all? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you asked because um, I, w- I was hoping we could discuss that. It it is shocking and shattering news. Now we knew, thanks to uh, the work of Gerald Posner, who's a an incredible journalist um, who wrote a book called Pharma that came out last year. We knew that McKinsey had done a tremendous amount of work advising Purdue on how to so-called turbocharge its sales. What we did not know, and it was revealed just a few weeks ago in a relatively obscure bankruptcy filing in the Purdue case, is that McKinsey also had proposed to Purdue to offer a rebate program to its large pharmacy customers and distributors that would offset the overdoses that in, that occurred as a result of OxyContin. So it's this extremely cynical calculation where they actually anticipated approximately how many overdoses each customer might see in you know the coming years and proposed that Purdue offer them these rebates Now, these rebates, ultimately what they are is they are a a way to make the risk more palatable. And I I mean, I, I, you know, I hardly have the words to describe to you how it felt to read that and how it felt, especially for some of the parents I know who have lost their children to overdoses to read that, especially those who lost kids in the years that followed, to know that those deaths were considered to be and, you know, anticipated cost of business and one that would be made more acceptable to customers if the price of the product was reduced. Now, these rebates didn't actually go into effect, but what it reveals is not just that Purdue, McKinsey, and, you know, ultimately, as we know now, certain um, national drug distributors were aware that these drugs were leading to death, but that they chose not to focus on that fact and that they were concerned instead with maximizing and protecting their business rather than addressing a public health emergency. Yeah. And it's really, 
you said a few things there. And the first one I want to point out is, and this is a little kidding aside here, when a lawyer is speechless, that's to really say something. <laughs> because you, you guys do that all day. And if you're speechless for trying to comprehend what people are going through, that really, to me, says a lot. And when you have, because uh, you, know, you use the word basically turbocharging their sales, that's something that should, in my mind, never happen in healthcare. We should never be looking at turbocharging anything other than access and prevention. Just because, honestly, we try and put ourselves out of business for the most part. Like, I always tell people that and they don't believe me. We're trying to, like, we try to counsel you. We try and help you make your life better because we don't want you on more drugs. We don't want you taking more of this. We don't want you using more healthcare dollars. But it's it obviously hasn't trended that way. And it's one of those things that we just should not be turbocharging sales, especially when we talk about an addicting substance here. That's just like the epitome because it's, it's going to turbocharge itself. If it starts going wrong, it should have anything be like, how can we slow this? Um, and it's really just the, it just shows what the Sacklers and Purdue pharmacy really, really dove into. And I mean, we've seen some settlements recently that are mind boggling and they're nowhere near enough, which is the crazy part. Um, that's probably a whole different discussion we can go into, but yeah, I think that it just really under, underlines how they were putting profits and their own their own company's well-being over America's well-being just as a whole. I feel like that's something that just cannot be encapsulated enough when you look at just how many deaths we're losing to opioids every year even in the middle of the pandemic. Obviously, we've lost right. we've lost a ton of people in this pandemic. That's again very big. But we're losing almost the equivalent of a Vietnam war to people every year of opioid overdoses. And a lot of that started because of things that Purdue did, got the access to it. You know, it became almost like, I don't want to say trendy, but it, it's it's a thing that people know about and they participate in. Uh, you even hear about it wrapped about in, in songs. It's just one of those things that you hear and people know about. And it's almost like commonplace. And the the scale of which, because they're marketing, that it ramped it up is just just phenomenally bad. I cannot understand how ethically, as we've seen in many documentaries, they've done that. But I think that the rebates thing is just really puts the icing on the cake for me, just of how they're like, well, you know, death's going to happen. What's a good number? We can we can settle with this, basically. And that's just disgusting on so many levels as, as, a, as a person, not even as a pharmacist. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm looking at one of the slides right now. And if, if you or any of your listeners want to see these documents, I'm actually um, – tracking and annotating a lot of the filings in the bankruptcy case in plain English. Uh, <laughs> Thank which you. I think is a necessary translation on my um, on my blog, which is on my website. But I'm I'm looking at one of the slides now and what they're doing is they're not just anticipating the number of overdoses, but they are placing a price on each of those lives. So in the slide that I'm looking at, they're saying that they would pay approximately a $7,000 rebate per event. And by an event, they mean somebody dying. So it's a, you know, just a level of um, cynicism that's beyond. And the difficulty for me as a prosecutor is, you know, I know physicians, including Dr. Lee and pharmacists, who were, you know, lured by greed and who sold prescriptions or dispensed illegally and who are now serving time in prison. Yep. And yet we now know that there are these corporate executives who were aware of the deaths, who were aware of the risk, who had all the knowledge available and who consciously disregarded that risk. And I, you know, I simply cannot understand that there's a different system of justice for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, if someone can get charged in a single overdose of selling, you know, heroin on the street, and you have proof that they were knew that there's gonna be numerous deaths. How is that not so much worse when it's you know 
sold to them by their doctor in all good faith and this isn't going to be a problem and you lied about and fudged the numbers too which is again another story but you know there's just so much proof here that they this was calculated they knew what was coming with this they they knew what they had in their hands and they did nothing basically except just say how can we cover this up or how can we make this look better for pr reasons and that's and how can we make more yeah and that's disturbing on so many levels yeah yeah and you know we were talking about some of the things obviously with Purdue and what have you here, you did call out as we were leading up to the podcast, the previous episode we recorded with RPH Ally where pharmacists can kind of rate prescribers was kind of a cool idea, um, especially when it comes because it started with opioids and some of those issues. So I think that was one of the offshoots we're seeing from things like this. And uh, kind of moving on to your book here a little bit before we wrap up the podcast, it's got a lot of praise. Uh, the author who wrote Dope Sick, which is a book I really enjoyed, even said this She's is like, wonderful. yeah, this is a great book um, that sold me on it. Uh, there's tons of other praise out there. Where can people find your book and when's it going to be released? Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you called out the Beth Macy quote because she is an absolute hero of mine. And yeah. um, I'm very, very, very proud that she even took the time to read it. So the book uh, is available in all bookstores. I always refer people to their, you know, local pharmacy and local bookstore. Yep. Um, so you can go on IndieBound and put in your zip code. It will send you to your closest bookstore. You can put an order through them if they don't have it already. Otherwise, it's also available through Barnes & Noble on Amazon. Um, I would love your listeners to know that I am donating a portion of my proceeds to FedUp. Uh, it's a coalition of groups from across the country founded by parents who have lost their children to overdoses. And uh, I um, hope to support them as much as I can. Um, so I hope your listeners will assist me in that by buying the book and telling your friends about it. And also please look up Fed Up, um, especially to any listeners, you know, who themselves have been affected by the opioid epidemic or are concerned by it. Um, they are not alone and there are resources out there to help. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. You're doing the exact opposite of Purdue. You're putting your money where action needs to be taken to help people. So I appreciate that. Um, it's definitely a noble cause because nothing says you have to do that, but I'm, I'm glad that you're taking that initiative. That's really big of you, I think. There's two questions I kind of ask everybody on the podcast, and you might have a little bit different take of it just because of where you practice and everything uh, with law and also being an author. If you could change one thing about pharmacy, not necessarily law, but just one thing, what would you change? Well, in my local pharmacy, I have absolutely excellent pharmacists. Uh, the the uh, pharmacy supervisor's name is Joe. I'm not going to say his last name, but um, he's in New York City, um, Walgreens. He is just the best, but he's often alone in there. And I can tell that he would like to spend more time to speak with each of the patients who come in to pick up prescriptions. And often it is very, very difficult. So I think this may be a very, you know, simplistic answer, but I wish that pharmacists had the staffing and the resources to be able to do the job in a way that made them feel comfortable with the service that they can provide and to really allow them to reach into the real depth of their knowledge and capacities. I don't think there's a pharmacist on who would listen to this who would disagree with that. And that would also kind of spin us back to the opioids of how we can have those conversations a little more time for them. So I, I like that. I think that's a great, a great point to call out there. If there was a law, federal or state or you know, anything that you know that could affect pharmacy, what would you change? Again, this is from the perspective of someone who's not an expert in pharmacy law. I think what I have 
you know, noticed as a consumer and um, saw, you know, to some extent in our case, the pharmacist's hands are really tied by insurance companies and their communication with patients on issues of financing, I think, can be so fraught and so difficult. And it must be very, very hard to be the person to have to to communicate what may seem like sometimes arbitrary decisions on the part of the insurance companies. And I think it it seems very unfair to me that we put pharmacists in that position where they have to be a gatekeeper, not just on the appropriateness of a medication, but on its affordability. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know what can be done to address that. But again, I don't think that we're giving I don't think that we're giving pharmacists the ability to exercise their expertise and their care for the patients and their depth of knowledge in a context where they are so limited by insurance companies. Yeah. No, I, I've had to do that myself. And it's it, it's probably the worst part of actually being a community pharmacist and having to you know, tell people that prescription's $500 or it's not covered because of this and, you know, all of those, all those fun discussions when somebody needs a medication. <laughs> so, hey, um, I'll make sure to include all of your, your personal blog, the book links, all that stuff in the podcast notes. So listeners, please go look at those notes. They'll have all of this context in there for you because it's important. And I really think that the message that uh, Charlotte Bismuth is getting out there is just amazing it obviously does she's done years worth of work on this and i can't stress enough how how really awesome it is to see something like this come to fruition where justice was done and she's obviously super knowledgeable about it and it's somebody who understands a good chunk of what the issues pharmacists are and how we can impact things like this so again thanks for coming on the podcast charlotte thank you so much for having me Awesome. And hey, listeners, again, if you can share this, I think this is a huge topic right now that needs more discussion. And I think that uh, Charlotte Bismuth is an absolute pro at it and communicating it and understanding it from every angle. So if you can share this, but as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.